Heavenly Father, we believe that your word is a living word, that it speaks to us in every age, in every time, in every generation, in every tribe and tongue. You speak to us through your word by your spirit. And so we pray that your spirit will just go before in all of our hearts, that you might encourage us through your word today, that you might cause us to turn our hearts more towards you through this word today, that you might call us into obedience and faithfulness through your word today and reveal to us your incredible love to us and for us through your word today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning is going to be uh, the last in the, the series we've been doing on the hymn Amazing Grace. Uh, as I mentioned a few times, I've decided to do this series as an excuse to just spend six weeks really thinking about grace, about the heart of the gospel, about all that Jesus has done for us and all that he means to us. And we're finishing with uh, sort of the last verse of the classic hymn that we usually sing. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. This morning we're going to be thinking about eternity. Uh, eternity isn't just being on hold with a government service. Uh, it's not just a young child explaining the plot of a movie that they've just watched to you. It's the promise of God for us about what, what life was made to be and what he is preparing for us. When he made the creation, it was good. When he made the creation, there was no entropy. There was no idea that death was an inevitability. Death entered the world through sin. But ever since then, God has had a plan to restore what he had made, a plan to restore eternity. And the final verse of Amazing Grace is a chance to reflect on what eternity means for us. And John Newton, when he, when he wrote this particular verse, he chose to express the idea of eternity with that idea that 10,000 years can go by and it's like no time has been lost at all. Those of us who are lucky might make it just to the far side of 100. We can't even really consider 10,000 years what it would be like to live for, let alone to say that once you've got to the end of that time, there's no less days. You're, you know, there, there's no end point, so you're no, further, no closer to the end than when you'd first begun. 10,000 years or as a day, to paraphrase what, uh, what Peter says about what you know, God's perception of time is. I don't know if you've ever tried to wrap your head around eternity, around the idea of something that is truly without end. We've only ever existed in time, in a world in which entropy is a universal law, in which eventually everything you know, from, from the ant and the, the, the plants and the grasses to the stars and the planets 
Eventually, everything dies. Everything has a use-by date. And in a sense, eternity then is beyond our comprehension. It's beyond anything that we've known or anything that we've experienced. And yet it is what our hearts long for. When the, uh, the author of Ecclesiastes was writing about the, the meaninglessness of life, which is what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about, it's a very interesting book uh, in the wisdom books of the Old Testament. He talks about how there's a time for all things on earth and at the end of that time, he makes this... It kind of sounds happy and joyful in this isolated verse, but it's, kind of, it's almost more of a lament. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. We all long for eternity. I think there's a part in us that testifies to us that death is not natural, that death is not what is supposed to happen, that death is actually an enemy that has entered the world through sin. He has said eternity in the human heart. And as I said, this was almost a lament for the, the author of Ecclesiastes who was wrestling with what was the purpose of life here and now when everything that we accomplish in this life will be brought to an end by death. And, and he works through a number of these issues throughout the book and, and today's sermon is not on Ecclesiastes. So. Uh, but he, he does testify to that longing within each of us for eternity. John was given a vision of this eternity. And I remember many years ago, like long enough ago that I think I was in Sunday school at the time, but it must have been school holidays because I was in church for a few weeks, and Brian was preaching on Revelation. And I remember a phrase that he used about the book of Revelation that it was like John was trying to describe in words things that there are no words for. He'd seen things beyond anything that we've ever seen and experienced and used whatever human language he could to bring across the things that he had seen. And in Revelation 22, John writes about this eternity that we look forward to. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. John records this picture that he has of the eternal 
uh, Jerusalem, the, 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 the eternal, the, the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, and this record of this, this new city coming down from the heavens. And this was, that was this, uh, he spent some time describing all of this, and then he talks about how God is at the centre of this city. And he talks about the tree of life and all of these details. Now, John wasn't particularly interested in city planning. He wasn't writing this to say, hey, look at the way that heaven is set up. But each detail tells us something about our home that we're looking forward to. And it is our home. Jesus is preparing this home for us. It's what he said to his disciples in John 14, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. And so each of the details that John has recorded here in, uh, in Revelation 22, each detail tells us something about our home. And Revelation is a book that is absolutely dripping with references to the Old Testament, with, with Old Testament imagery. And when we look into what you know, those references are, we see the point that Paul, uh, Paul, that John is making here. The river of life flowing through the city, uh, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It reminds us of a few things. It reminds us of the Garden of Eden. And out of the heart of Eden, a river flowed, and from, from there it split into four great headwaters. And just by that reference to Eden, we're reminded, we're taken back to before sin, to when the world was as God had made it to be, when creation was good. And there was no, nothing bad in it. Reminds us of a, a world where people had a perfect relationship with God. It's described as that God walked with Adam and Eve in the call of the garden. And also this picture of the river calls to mind promises that we read in places like uh, Ezekiel and Zechariah. And particularly you know, the picture from Ezekiel is of this river coming forth out of the temple and the picture was it flows out of the temple with with God as its origin it flows out of the temple and it flows down to the Dead Sea uh, which which is you know obviously so full of salt that you that even people who are terrible at floating like me they can just float in the water there and it's so salty nothing can live there like nothing can grow from the water of the Dead Sea and it describes this water flowing down from the temple of God into the Dead Sea and this, the waters are restored and plants grow around the Dead Sea uh, and it's this picture of what is kind of broken and useless being revived and made new and brought to new life and that God is the origin of this restoration as it has flowed down from the temple. The tree of life that grows on either side of the river and, and obviously somehow like grows over it and meets in the middle. Uh, the, the tree of life calls to mind Eden. 
Because there were two trees in the garden that are particularly made note of. The one that we weren't supposed to eat from, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the tree of life. And after humanity had sinned, we were cut out of the garden. It was guarded. It was, you know, people couldn't go in there. Because God did not want corrupted humanity to eat from the tree of life, to live eternally in that state. The tree of life reminds us of the perfection of Eden and of what we were cut off from by sin. And it talks about that 12 crops of fruit grow on this, um, on this tree every month. Now, obviously, a month is kind of a meaningless description in a place where there is no time, but the picture is of abundance, that there is enough for all. And it says the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And again, the, the picture is not so much of like people will get sick in heaven and can be healed, but it's this picture of that there will be health for all. Everybody will have a, a source of health for all time. But then the greatest detail of this picture of heaven, they will see his face. We will see him face to face. When we look back on the Old Testament, we remember not even Moses, uh, who who dwelt in the tent and had the glory of God shine upon him and, and who came down from the mountain with his face glowing with radiance, from being in the presence of the Lord so much so that people couldn't even look at him. Even he did not get to see the Lord God face to face. It's a picture, of again, of that relationship that has been broken since Eden, being restored, being made new. There is now no veil between God and his people. But it won't just be our new home that will be changed. It won't just be heaven that will be glorious. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright, shining as the sun, we will be glorious, bright, shining as the sun. Now, maybe some of you already think you are. But I know glorious is not a word I would use to describe myself. And I, you know, despite that little barb just then. I think most of us are in the same boat. But if we look to what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, he tells us, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay, to it liberated from entropy, and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. You will be glorious. But we do need to clarify this is not a picture of us standing there in our own glory. Look at what I have accomplished. I made it to heaven. I must be pretty good. Not that kind of glory. It's the glory of a beautifully restored artwork that had been damaged or that had been worn down over time. 
being restored, being made new, being made perfect in a way that brings honour to the artist who did that restoration. We will be glorious because the Son of God saw fit to share his glory with us, to share his righteousness with us. Because we have no glory of our own. We're all sinful. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Apart from him, we have no hope. Yet when Jesus came with his amazing grace, when he died on the cross, and in so doing nailed our sins to that cross, and as he hung on that cross, God's wrath was poured out on the sins of the world. God looked at Jesus in that time to, to use an analogy, and saw a sinner. because Not because of his sins, but because of ours. And in the inverse way, he looks upon us now and sees the righteousness that Jesus has given to us. Not because we have been perfect, but because those sins were paid for. Because Jesus took them in our place. So what will we do for 10,000 years and then more and then more and then more? Will we just sit around looking glorious? Will we, and if if I have one criticism of the verse of amazing grace that we're looking at now, it is that it kind of suggests that all we'll do for all that time is sing. When we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, there's no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. Now, I love singing, but I'm not sure that I think an eternity of nothing but singing is, is heaven. Although I will say with that, I do remember one occasion where I went to a, a national training event. It was a, a thing for all of the, the university Christian groups that would go to in Canberra at the end of the year. And I remember... Uh, you know, with, with the, or the over a thousand uh, students gathered from different places, we were singing How Great Thou Art. And then in one chorus, uh, the, the musicians just stopped playing. And all you could hear was the thousand people singing How Great Thou Art. And I, you know, I really felt like, you know, in the chills that I got in that moment, that it was an imperfect picture, but that, that slight picture of what worship will be like in heaven when the voices of those who have been redeemed by Jesus join together thousands upon thousands singing his praise but my main point is singing is not all that we will do we read Revelation 22 5 Uh, they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever In the beginning, Adam and Eve were given responsibility for the earth, for the creation that God had placed them in. And they ruled over that creation, but also under the authority of God. 
And again, we get this picture of a restoration of that relationship where people are restored to a good stewardship, a reign over his creation, but this time in perfect relationship with God. But as I said, I don't think that we'll suddenly go to where singing is all that we do. In the New Testament, we've been reminded uh, as God's people, as Christians, we are not just worshipping God when we sing. We're not just worshipping God for an hour and, and, or maybe an hour and 20 minutes if I go on a bit long on a Sunday morning. But all of our lives are our worship of God. That we worship God when we drive to work. We worship God when we, you know, we play with our kids or our grandkids. We worship God when we do the chores and wash the dishes. We worship God in all things if they're done with a heart that seeks to glorify God and bring him honour in all things. So I don't know what our day by day will be like in heaven. I don't know what, what reigning looks like in the concrete sense. But I think we get a picture that it is life like, somewhat like this life, except with the sin and the brokenness and, and the futility and the hardship of the work taken away. And in all that we do, we will bring glory to God and he will dwell with us and we will be his people. So I hope that's a more appealing picture to each and every one of you than, than sitting on clouds and strumming harps and, and the common pictures of heaven that we often get. But in closing this morning, I want to think about just briefly, why does it matter? Why do we take the time to talk about what heaven will be like? And why do we sing every time we sing songs like Amazing Grace about heaven, encouraging one another about it? Why does it matter that heaven will be glorious? Why does it matter that we will be glorious? Why does it matter how we will worship God in eternity? I think the answer to that is, well, an answer to that. There's more than one answer. But the one I particularly want to close with today was something we already saw in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. It's all about giving us comfort, giving us the strength to go on. It's about endurance in suffering. When we remember that not only are our, is heaven going to be better, you know, going to make up for all of the sufferings that we endure in this life, but that there's, the difference between them is so vast that it's not even worth comparing them. When we sing about heaven, when, we, when I preach about heaven, we remind ourselves that this earth is not our true home. That, this, that we are, to, to borrow Peter's phrase, that we're aliens, we're strangers, we're foreigners in this land. Now, if you live, you know, if... if you go from Australia and you live in another country for a while, 
you might come to, to quite enjoy that country, to love that country. You'll have a community of people around you that you've come to know and love. And it's the same here. Nobody's saying that we can't love the good parts of this world that we're in and the good parts of the country that God has put us in and the, the people that he has put around us. But there comes a sense, there comes a time where every good thing in creation can instead become to us the main thing, can become what all of our passions go towards, can become all that we think about, all that consumes us. It can become an idol. And keeping our eyes on heaven helps us to see idols for what they are. And it keeps the idols from getting a hold of us. An idol can grow out of materialism, out of comfort and luxuries and having all the best things in this life. An idol can grow out of hedonism, out of a love for all pleasures, whether they're good for me or not, or you're out of all, any sense of moderation or healthy expressions of pursuits of pleasure. And I think this last one, this is one that I've felt over the last week and a bit, I've felt convicted that I haven't said enough about out of a fear of offending people. I think an idolatry of our earthly home can grow out of patriotism. Now, I'm not saying that everybody that considers themselves a patriot has an idol. But I think there can be a time where people love you know, and get their energies and their thoughts so bound up in this country that we live in that they lose sight of the fact that this is not our home. I think when you saw at the end of last year where, in the name of patriotism, people... Uh, overran the US Capitol. I would suggest to you that at the heart of a lot of that was idolatry, was too much investment in the things of this world, in particular political leaders, uh, and in ensuring things go the way that we want them to do. Yeah, within our political systems and within our country. In all sorts of things, if we lose sight of the fact that this world is not our home, we open ourselves up to the risk of idolatry. And as I said, none of... The majority of idols, not things like statues of Zeus and things like that, but the majority of idols that a New Testament person will face are good things that we have elevated above their place as good gifts of God and instead placed them in the place of God in our lives as the thing that matters above all else. When we remember that this is not our true home, it sets us free of our fears. It sets us free of having to have all the answers. It sets us free of needing to make sure that everything goes right. Now, that doesn't mean we can't lobby for things. We can't you know, write letters to, to politicians. We can't 
do these things. But then we can leave the outcome in God's hands, knowing that this world is not our home and that our hope is in something that can never be taken away. Our hope is that we will be with our Creator, bright shining as the sun, and that after we've been with him 10,000 years, we can just look forward to the next 10,000, and then the next 10,000, and then the next 10,000. And he will be our God, and we will be his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you made this world and it was good. And we confess to you that just as Adam and Eve chose not to trust in you and to go their own way, each and every one of us has at times chosen our own way and have rejected your rule over our lives. We acknowledge that we do not deserve to spend eternity with the creator who we rejected. But we thank you for your amazing grace. That even when we rejected you, you did not reject us. That while we were still your enemies, Christ died for us. So that anyone who believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Lord, we pray that you will make sure that we are not so earthly-minded that we are of no heavenly use. We won't spend all of our time with our eyes fixed on heaven and ignoring the things of this world and the things that we can be doing. But likewise, help us not to be so invested in the day-to-day that we don't lift our eyes to see eternity to see the great promise that you're holding out for us, to see the home that you have gone to prepare for us and to look forward to when we will see you there. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.